This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Yeah, I don't know about stumbling out of the uh, purser's office, but maybe stumbling around the uh, stumbling around the old mixing board in the big radio station tonight. I am Felix Bennell. This is Cascade of History. We're back live in studio after being off for the last couple of weeks. Um, we've got a great show planned for you. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody who came to the live remote broadcast we did back at the end of January, I guess about three weeks ago, um, right across the street from the Parkland School. Uh, at a church right there in Parkland in Pierce County. Really wonderful people turned out for that show. We had great guests. Everything was it, techno- <laughs> technologically, it went really smooth. Uh, we had live music. We had lots of local people involved with the Save the Parkland School effort. And it just was, it was so cool to be doing this show like I do almost every Sunday night, live, you know, 8 o'clock Pacific time. But to be sitting there with a live audience who would laugh at my dumb jokes and clap and chant uh, save the parkland school and everything it was it was really uh, energizing it's a little different being back in the studio by myself but uh, um, i appreciate you tuning into the show tonight or if you're listening to the podcast thanks for doing that too if you um, do listen to the podcast and you listen on one of those platforms that lets you give us a really good rating please do that it helps spread the word helps the podcast reach more people which we're always trying to do with the show um Let's see. Oh, one of the guests we had at that live program, the live remote broadcast from Parkland um, here on Space 101.1 FM was a guy named Nick Bierman, who was with a group called um, Save the Ryan House. That's another Pierce County Historic Preservation Project we've talked about many times on this show. They're having a big spaghetti dinner next Sunday night at Purdy's Restaurant in, uh, in Sumner. It's a fundraiser for their effort to try to save the Ryan House. It's a great, wonderful house from the 1860s. One of the oldest uh, oldest structures, really, in Pierce County. Anyway, um, they're doing a big fundraiser, and the last day to buy tickets is tomorrow. So if that's uh, February 19th. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it down there next Sunday, but, boy, the idea of uh, just coughing up a few bucks to for a good cause and then eating uh, all-you-can-eat spaghetti in downtown Sumner seems like a perfect way to spend Sunday, February 25th, to me. So we have a link at the Facebook page for Cascade of History if you want to go check that out. Uh, let's see, what else do I want to say? Oh, I want to thank the people of the Redmond Historical Society. They invited me out there last weekend. Last Saturday morning, I gave a talk there about the history of Sandpoint, the hidden aviation history of Sandpoint, because this show originates pretty much every week from historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays Magnuson Park. I'm in this master-at-arms quarters built back in the 1940s. And I got invited to come and give a talk, and I put together a bunch of slides and got some really cool photographs and had help from my friend Lee Corbin. Uh, Lee came to the presentation. Sean Murphy was there too. Some of the other people we hear frequently on this show. It was a really great audience. Um, my fourth grade teacher, Miss Edson, showed up. I hadn't seen Miss Edson since probably ooh, 1980, something like that. And it was great to kind of catch up with people over there in Redmond and talk about Sandpoint history. 
this place, we, we've got to do more on this show about Sandpoint history, and we will be doing a ton more um, as we get closer to April, which is the uh, 100th anniversary of the Around the World flight that originated here and ended here in April 1924. Um, we'll have some more guests. We're going to think we're doing a special broadcast for that centennial. We'll have more details about that as we get closer to the date. But uh, this really is the cradle of aviation history. Oh, and then last week, right around the time I was putting together my talk for the Redmond Historical Society, there were some photographs posted on Facebook by a local family who had sort of rediscovered these photo albums that a great uncle had had put together starting back in 1929. He was just a 25-year-old kid, but he learned to, uh, he was flying for the Navy out of Sandpoint, and he had a camera. And he took all these incredible photographs that no one had ever seen before that we've, I've, I've shared a bunch of those on my Facebook page. I did a story for the other radio station for Cairo um, last week, I guess. I'll post that link on the Cascade of History page if I haven't yet done that. But there's just so much incredible aviation history here at Sandpoint that just is, uh, not exactly forgotten, but there's certainly good opportunities to highlight it. And um, we're going to do more about the aviation history here, particularly in this very critical centennial year out here at Sandpoint. So anyway, uh, thanks to everybody who I've run into over the last couple of weekends doing these events out in the community. It's always great to talk to people in person. It's fun to do a show uh, in the studio, too. That's uh, uh, that's that's certainly, uh, certainly fun on its own. Um, OK, so coming up tonight, a bit later on, we're going to listen to some vintage audio from a guy named Nard Jones. He's one of the first guys to do serious history on the radio in the Pacific Northwest starting back in the 1950s. Um, he did a series for People's National Bank called Northwest Narratives. He did another series for Puget Power, I think called uh, Puget Sound Profiles. Um, I know my dad used to listen to that show when it was on back in the early 1960s. I've been looking for audio from either of those programs for a long time, never been able to track down any recordings. I do have complete scripts for both series. So a bit later on in the show, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna read the very first script. It's the 65th anniversary of um, Northwest Profiles, Wait. <laughs> Northwest Narratives. It's hard to keep track. Anyway, it's the 65th anniversary of Northwest Narratives. So we're gonna read that very first script, toying with the idea of doing the entire run of the series. It'll be something like 200 scripts. They're very short. They're maybe a couple minutes long. Not quite sure what I want to commit to yet. <laughs> Would be a a big project, but the fact there's no audio recordings that I've been able to track down, I, I like this notion of kind of uh, putting uh, the old Nard Jones scripts to uh, to audio. But don't don't quote me on that. We're gonna we're gonna see what we can do about that. But um, some of the vintage audio that we have, it's not from his series, but he wrote a number of books about Northwest history. And um, when he published a book called Evergreen Land back in 1947, he was on some kind of a reading, like a book show or a book review program. I've been unable to identify who the host is. I think the guy's name is, is Glenn, the first name of the host. He never fully introduces himself on this audio that I have. But here's a little tease from the show. Glenn was not shy at all about correcting, uh, uh, pointing out some mistakes that Nard Jones had made in his book. Say, before we go any further, let me call your attention to an error in spelling. You are the type that are made in your book. I do this so people in Linden won't feel hurt. On page 53, you spell Linden, capital L-Y-N-D-O-N, oh. instead of capital L-Y-N-D-E-N. Isn't that awful? It's terrible. <laughs> oh, I like when Nard Jones says, oh, I like how I would love to be on a show with my new book where the host turns to a particular page and points out a, sp a spelling error. That's a different era of radio. Well, I promise we'll never do that on this show. If you're an author, you've written a historic book, and we somehow or other have you on the show sometime, I won't say turn to page 53 where you misspelled the town of Linden up in Whatcom County. Anyway, we'll have more on that later in the show. Uh, we're also going to talk live with Joseph uh, Penter, 
Pentrodocus. Pentrodocus. I, uh, I wrote it out to pronounce it properly. I knew I would stumble over it. He's a board member at the Key, Key Peninsula Historical Society. They've got a new exhibit opening there next week about highways and highway history that I'm excited to hear more about. We'll talk to him later in the show. Before we do that, though, it is Black History Month. And I thought I'd dip into the archives uh, and we'll play some highlights from a conversation I had back in 2019 with Dr. Quintard Taylor. He's a history professor emeritus at the University of Washington. He's the founder of that website, blackpast.org, which if you haven't checked out, you definitely should. He's also the author of a book called The Forging of a Black Community about the history of the central area in Seattle, uh, published originally about 25 years ago, and a new edition of it, a reissue, published two years ago at University of Washington Press. And when I talked to Dr. Taylor, this was for the old Columbia Conversations podcast, which I did prior to doing this program, back when I was editing Columbia Magazine for the State Historical Society. My first question to Dr. Taylor was when he first paid a visit to the central area in Seattle. And this is what he said. My first visit to the central area or the central district, you know, there's still debates about whether or not we should call it the central district or the central area. I, I chose the district. Um, I first came be, uh, partly because I was teaching at Washington State University. The first job, the first academic job I ever had was a system professor at Washington State University. I was there from 1971 to 1975. And of course, if you're in Pullman, you want to seek every opportunity you can to get out of Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I did, and we did. And so we came to Seattle as often as we could. We came to other places as well. I think one of the, one of the interesting things about Pullman is that it's sort of a, being there encourages you to see the rest of the state. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> if you live in Seattle or Tacoma, you're less likely to travel across the state. So I, I got a very, very good sense, a high-level sense of the entire state of Washington early on. And so that that has helped to shape my perspective about uh, living in the Pacific Northwest and particularly in this state. So at any rate, to, to answer your question, I probably came to the Central District the first time in the summer of 72. I arrived in, in September of 70, 71. I went, to, went right away to teaching at WSU. And then the, the first summer, by the first summer, I was, uh, I was coming to Seattle. In fact, by the first summer, I was already involved in a history project that would sort of dominate my life forever. I, I, again, I don't know how much time you want in terms of this interview, but, this is great. but uh, I was teaching at WSU and I was teaching a standard African-American history course and a student, a tall, lanky student at that time, I think he was on the basketball team, uh, named Billy Ray Flowers, asked me, you know, why is it when you people, <laughs> and I didn't take offense at <laughs> that, why? because he was talking about historians in this context, <laughs> why is it when you people uh, discuss African-American history, you never talk about the West? And I said, and, you know, I was 22 years old. I was far too young to be in a classroom teaching. <laughs> I said, because there is no black history in the West. <laughs> and he responded. And, you know, he was brave enough to challenge me. And he, he began to talk about his own family who had come out to Portland in the 1850s. Wow. And I was just so fascinated by that because I grew up in Tennessee and I'd gone to school in North Carolina and Minnesota. I had never heard stories about, you know, African-Americans in the West and certainly not in Portland. And so I was so fascinated with this. Uh, long story short, that uh, I decided that I wanted to do some research on this. And we got a small grant. I think the grant was probably $5,000 from Washington State University. And that allowed us to rent a, to get a car 
to have enough money to pay for a state car, a tape recorder, some tapes, and for me to hire a research assistant to help me go throughout the region interviewing African-Americans and people who knew African-Americans about black history in this region, in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. And, of course, the, the obvious choice for the research assistant was Billy Ray Flowers. <laughs> and, so, and so armed with a state car, Billy Ray Flowers, a tape recorder, and not much overall knowledge about the region, <laughs> we began to sort of find people, find African-Americans who talked to, who would be willing to talk to us about their story. This was, this was a time when oral history was all the rage. And so we decided to do these oral history interviews. And I'll tell you, Felix, I, the, the first... The first interviews were in places uh, like Moscow, Idaho, north of Moscow, Idaho, huh. or in Walla Walla, or or in uh, small towns near and around Pullman. Because what what was to my surprise, to my shock, was that there were these blacks who had been who were descendants of homesteaders who had settled in the area about the time of statehood. They had settled in both northern uh, northern Idaho and in eastern, far eastern Washington. Uh, there was one family, one black family, and I'm blanking on the name now, but uh, it was, oh, the King family, and they owned, literally, they owned King Valley, which was probably five or 6,000 acres of land in a small valley, no more than 30 miles north of, of, of Pullman. Huh. I mean, imagine that. I, you know, who in Pullman, black or white, would have known that there would be black landowners uh, you know, that close to Pullman, Washington. And so that's so that fascinated me. And so my point here is that I began to interview African-Americans in places they we think they shouldn't have been, like Pendleton <laughs> and, and, and Walla Walla and Pomeroy and, you know, those kind of places. And it, it really dawned upon me that there's a lot of history that needs to be uncovered and needs to be told. And so that was really my introduction to this. And so I actually ended up coming to Seattle and Portland and Tacoma relatively late in the process of trying to construct or reconstruct this African-American history in the Pacific Northwest because we started in the small towns. We literally started in the small towns. Uh, we ended up going to Roslyn, I think, oh, before yeah. we got to Seattle. You and, know. and are those tapes still in the collection over at WSU or where'd those tapes end up? You know, it's interesting you would ask that. You, yeah, they are, theoretically, they are in the collection at WSU. They have been in the collection since the 1970s. One of the requirements was that all the taped interviews would stay at the Washington State University Library. Yeah. And they, they've gone through various iterations. But as far as I know, they are still at the, at the library. Uh, the last time I checked was about five years ago when they were there. Were they ever digitized or made more accessible than just on the tapes or whatever they were on originally? You know, that's a question I can't answer. You'd have to check with WSU on that. We're talking interviews that took place in the early 1970s. Wow. That would, oh, okay, okay. That, um, that, that's yeah. on my list of things to check out. Yeah, and those, those interviews, in fact, led to our TV series, South by Northwest, uh, which was you know, the result of a grant that we received from what was then called the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Oh, and yeah. again, long story short, they funded us. They gave us $270,000, which is at that time an enormous amount of money yeah. to do a five-part TV series based upon our research, my research on African-Americans in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the stipulations was that we had to film on location or as close to on location as possible, you know, and, you know, where the event happened. 
Huh. Uh, and <laughs> and this was the odd one. We had to we had to not use film. We had to use videotape. Oh. And so and so we were some of the first people to use videotape. Now you can actually see those those episodes, all of those episodes, if you go to Black Pass. Uh, go to Black Pass. Go to the multimedia page, and then just go to. Uh, South by Northwest. Oh, cool. I can't wait to check those out. Yeah. Now, understand, these were done in the 1970s, okay? Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> no I understand. Yeah, no, it makes perfect okay. sense. I hope, I hope they're very different than TV today because it, it, was, it was more of a craft back then in some ways. Yeah, um, yeah, very much. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is sort of the, the difference between the central area you visited as a civilian or a non-academic or not, hmm. and, and, and the one that you discovered in your research over the next you know, 20 years, I guess. What, what were the things about the central district that you learned through your research that weren't visible on the surface when you were just visiting as a very young man, you know, 50 years ago? Well, to be honest, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I ever visited the Central District when I wasn't doing research. Okay. You know, that, <laughs> okay. that would be the reason for me coming over. Got it. Uh, but, you know, I had certain preconceived notions based upon my experiences back east. I mean, most of us came from back east. Most of us in Washington State, even to this day, somehow or another ended up coming out from back east or our parents came from back east and so yeah. i was no exception and i based a lot of my ideas about quote the ghetto uh on what was going on back east you know i expected to see a densely populated uh area i expected to see very few non-blacks in the area i expected to see much more dilapidated housing now there certainly there certainly was bad housing in the in the central district but Certainly, it paled in comparison, no pun intended, but paled, paled in comparison to the south side of Chicago or New York's Harlem or any of the other major uh, black communities at that time. And so that was a shock. That was, that was actually a shock. Uh, the other thing, I don't know if it was a shock, but the other thing was that, you know, size matters. The, the Central District was a predominantly black community, but it was a relatively small community when compared, say, to Los Angeles or compared to Houston, Texas or Chicago, Illinois. And so that sort of determined a lot of what would happen or wouldn't happen in that area. Uh, I think on the other hand, uh, the, the research in the Central District, even though there were certain things that clearly were not similar to other areas of the country, there was a lot that was the same. And that was the that was not necessarily surprising, but it was in some ways disappointing. What are those things that would be the same? The same was the fact that there was high unemployment. There was particularly high youth unemployment. Uh, there was crime, uh, you know, significantly high crime. Uh, there were drugs. There, there was a drug scene in the Central District. Uh, it was essentially the conditions that you could find in any black community across America at the time. They could be replicated on a smaller scale, obviously, but they could be replicated in, in the Central District. And so, go ahead. I was going to say, were, and were there differences or similarities between how the Central District and the residents there related to the, the rest of the sort of more white city compared with similar communities in other parts of the country where there's a, a black community and black neighborhood surrounded by a... a yeah, a yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I guess my... I guess the way I would answer that is that people in the Central District understood fully that even though this was a black community, they were in a sea of whites. In other words, the, the overwhelming majority of the people in Seattle, and certainly almost all of the power structure was white at the time. 
Whereas in a place like, you know, Atlanta or, or New York or Chicago or Houston uh, or Los Angeles, uh, that would be a large enough black community so that there would be a cadre of, of black political leaders. I think at that time in the Central District, and this, this happened in 1967, uh, the first black person elected to the city council in the history of Seattle uh, was Sam Smith. And that's, that's relatively late, 1967. There were no other black office holders at the local level that I recall. And there were, there were a couple of blacks that were in the state legislature. But that's it as far as political representation. And so that's, that was unusual. Again, it was, it was a difference in, in, in degree because certainly there was, no country, there was no city in America that had proportionate black representation. I don't want to suggest that somehow another Chicago had the representation it should have, given the size of the population. But, but certainly when you look at the power structure of Seattle, it was, it was exceedingly white, exceedingly white. And so that was the milieu in which African-Americans had, had to operate. Um, Again, I'm trying to answer your question. Yeah, no, this is great. This is, this is exactly the kind of stuff I was hoping to hear. And, and in, the, yeah. in, in the time you were observing, like say from the early 70s up until the time your book's published, what were the most significant changes that happened in that neighborhood? Gentrification. Gentrification was beginning. And actually, it was beginning in the 1970s and certainly in the 1980s, but it was almost imperceptible. I was I, I can relate a conversation that I had, and I'll use some names here. Mrs. Constance Thomas, she's no longer with us now, but she, ironically, she was about my age now. She was about 71 or 72 when I talked to her. I, she was one of the people I interviewed, and I interviewed her because she was a second, I think she was second generation Seattleite, but her parents had come around World War One, and her parents, one of her, her father was from Jamaica, and he was actually active in the Garvey movement in Seattle. Yes, there was a small Garvey movement in Seattle. Wow. And, and she and her sisters were some of the earliest black students, and this was in the 1930s and 1940s. You have to check the dates. But they were some of the earliest black students to attend the University of Washington. So they had that distinction. And one of the sisters eventually became uh, one of the first people, one of the first black people, uh, uh, appointed to the legislature. She didn't run for a full term or she didn't win, but she was appointed to the legislature in 1966. So, so Mrs. Thomas was a fixture in the community. She was, you know, she was a leader in the community. She was someone that everyone looked up to, everyone talked to. Uh, and she told me something. She relayed a story. I was, I was in a car with her and another uh, elderly black woman and uh, another researcher it could have been Billy Ray Flowers it could have been someone else but and she said mark my words understand that one day whites will recognize how valuable central district property is and they will start moving back here huh. and when she said that in 1972 <laughs> or 1973 or whatever that was I said this woman is I didn't say she was delusional but <laughs> but I said I don't think that's going to happen because at that point in American history, understand, understand the way historians look at these things. At that point in American history, no community had ever gone from being black to being something else. Mm. Okay. That, you know, communities had this secession process. And by the time blacks got there, you know, nobody else would come in. Nobody else would be there. So gentrification 
except maybe in a few rare instances across the country. Gentrification was an unknown concept. And she was explaining she was explaining the, uh, the coming gentrification, and I was completely dismissive of it. Hmm. I didn't believe it would happen because <laughs> it had not happened on a national level to, to that point. And now, of course, you can see what's happening in Seattle. Uh, I, I don't have the, the precise percentages in front of me, but uh, the Central District went from being an overwhelmingly black community. Although, let me be clear, it was never an all-black community. Yeah. It was never an all-black community, but yeah. becoming, from being an overwhelmingly black community to now being a community where blacks are 10, 12% of the population. Yeah. That's a huge change yeah. in a relatively in a relatively short time, and it's a change that, as I said, I could not have anticipated in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies. That that just was not on the radar. This might be a dumb question, and probably kind of a dumb question, but if, going back to your earliest time there in the central district, and then the, over those twenty years, you know, before your book comes out, are there clear examples of systemic racism that everyone just understands or there and just accept, or for the most part, accept as just a fact of life in Seattle in the Central District in the 70s? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, to, to wrap my mind around the idea of accept. I, yeah. I think they understood that it was there, and maybe accept is the right word because they, you know, they understood they couldn't do very much about it. Uh, you know, one that comes to mind that comes right down to the day, police brutality. And understand that police brutality is an issue that's been in the black community even longer than going back to the 1960s. If you go to Black Pass and look up the Barry Lawson case, you will see an example of uh, three policemen, three white policemen, who were convicted of killing a black waiter in 1938. Now, what's unusual about this is it's 1938, but what's even more unusual about it is that a much smaller black community, a community of no more than 3,500 3, people, 3,000 to 3,500 people, mobilized and, you know, with allies, they couldn't have done it alone, but with allies, they were able to bring these three, uh, three white policemen to justice. You know what that, you know, you know how remarkable that is? Because it's hard to bring cops to justice today. And they were able to do this in 1938 in Seattle. Uh, and so the issue of police brutality is hardly a new one. It's hardly something that was discovered by Black Lives Matter or you know by our generation. It's been around for yeah. a very, very long time in Seattle and all across the country, not just in Seattle, but all across the country. In that 1938 case, why were they able? Tell me a little bit about it, and then tell me why that was well, able to go, happen. Go, well, most of what I know is actually on the website okay. in that entry, but you can you can do research to find out more. Okay, but. From what I gather, uh, these policemen, well, first of all, understand that the working class black community tended to live in what we now call the international district. Again, the international, we think of the international district as always having been Asian, but actually it was always, it always had Asian groups, but it also had a significant black minority. And, and the blacks were essentially there because they worked on the railroads or they worked on the ships, and so they were close to the water, they were close to... Um, to the railroad station, and there was one black waiter. I don't know. He probably worked on one of the ships, one of the steamship lines, um, who was in a hotel. And this was, you know, this is a working class hotel. Let's be clear, it was mm -hmm. almost like a rooming house. And somehow, or another, he had a confrontation, and there was an altercation between him and these policemen. 
And yeah, let's put it like this. The policemen say he fell down the stairs. Witnesses say he was pushed down the stairs and he was and he was killed. Mm. And it was going to be initially it was going to be just written off as an accident. And that was the end of it. But the the head of the Urban League um, and I, I'm blanking on his name right now. This is what happens when you talk to 71 year olds. But you can get all of this yeah. information on Black Pass. That's why we have Black Pass, because people get old and they forget. Okay. But you can go to Black Pass and you can find out. I think his name was James Jackson. Okay. Uh, he was head of the Urban League at the time. He was the first head of the Urban League, first black head of the Urban League, because the Urban League started in 1930. And he did something very un Urban League like. You know, the Urban League is usually the organization that tries to find jobs for blacks and tries to. Uh, help blacks, um, you know, acclimate to the new urban environment. But in this instance, he decided to lead a coalition to find justice for for Barry Lawson. And so he was able to locate a white uh, witness and bring him back from Portland and to have that person testify. And as a result, these, these three cops were convicted. Now, their sentences were eventually, if I recall, they were eventually commuted by the governor or they were pardoned by the governor. And so they didn't spend a lot of time in jail. But the very fact that they were arrested uh, is remarkable, as I said, given the fact that, you know, if you look at all of the people who've been killed by police recently under, uh, under unusual circumstances, <laughs> if I can say that, that uh, very few of those people have been brought to, brought to justice and you know 2016 2017 2018 2019 2020 okay and so. in, in, in the time since your book was published which is now going on i guess a little more than 25 years now yeah that's crazy years now. the 90s already that long ago what's what else has changed in addition to the gentrification and other what, what's different about the central district now than, than it was 50 years ago or 25 years ago yeah well i i think gentrification is probably the the 800 pound uh, elephant in the room i mean you know every if, if we're talking about a black community and with black institutions nearby or present and all of a sudden the black population leaves, then that community is put under tremendous pressure. For instance, there, there have been debates going on for a while in the African-American community about whether to locate the main churches, um, um, First AME and uh, Mount Zion, to relocate those churches to the suburbs. Yeah. Because essentially what has happened is that the black community has moved to the suburbs. And in fact, the uh, New Beginnings uh, Christian Fellowship is the largest black church, although they would argue that they're not a black church because they have members who aren't black. But they are the largest uh, church with a significant black membership in the entire area. And they're in Renton. Huh. They're almost at the Renton-Auburn uh, border. Interesting. So... <laughs> So, so in a sense, what has happened is that there, there has been this, there has arisen this kind of debate, and so it comes out of the larger question of gentrification. But this debate about whether or not the institutions can survive in an area where they are no longer, you know, they, uh, the, there's no longer a significant black population to support them. These were churches. These were landmark churches uh, that had a constituency around them. People walked to church. Uh, because people lived in the central district. Well, obviously, if you, you live in Renton or some of these other places, you can't do it. Let, let me give you a, a, a statistic or a factoid. Um, 2003. In 2003, um, we, had a, we reached a tipping point in terms of the African-American community. 
for the first time in the history of this region, this urban region, Seattle and its suburbs, there were more black people who lived in the suburbs than lived in the city of Seattle. Huh. I'm not just talking about the central district. I'm talking about the entire city of Seattle. Hmm. And so there is this, you know, gentrification. We talk about gentrification mainly as, you know, the constant, the, 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 how would we say this, the influx of whites into the community. The flip side of that coin, and for various reasons, which, which probably take more, much longer than we have time for, but, but the flip side of that coin is that African Americans then began to spread out. The, the population uh, begins to spread over the entire metropolitan region. I mean, there are black folks in communities today, and remember, I came to Washington in 1971, and I marvel at the fact that there are black folks in, in these communities, small suburban communities, all over the region you know yeah there are black folks in mercer island there are black folks in the suburbs of uh, of snohomish county uh mm -hmm. look at the huge black influx into places like auburn and kent and certainly federal way i mean this is this is amazing and so so when we talk about the black community we no longer talk about a a spatially defined area we can no longer talk about you know, a ghetto or a, a close-knit, physically close-knit community. Uh, we have to talk about a community, and this is one of the arguments that I made a long time ago. We have to talk about the community as a kind of an intellectual construct instead of a physical construct. Yeah. In other words, in other words, the community is connected by a shared history, shared values, uh, shared issues, but the community itself. Is spread all over the metropolitan area, and and one of the examples, one of the best examples, well, two examples of this now. Uh, one is the Jewish community, and that's probably the first to experience this. And the other example is the Asian community, the Asian American community. Most Asian Americans do not live <laughs> in in the international district. Let's be clear, yeah, they do yeah. not live in the international district and haven't for a long time. And by the same token, you know, obviously, yeah, the original Jewish populations were essentially located in the Central District, and they're not there anymore. And that was my conversation, uh, highlights my conversation with Dr. Quintard Taylor from, I think, from 2020, originally part of the Columbia Conversations podcast. You're listening to Cascade of History. We're live every Sunday night on Space 101.1 FM, Magnuson Park here in Seattle. If you can't tune us in on the FM signal, if you don't live close enough to the antenna, you can get us streaming anytime at space101fm.org. And then this show is available as a podcast, too, at pretty much every podcast platform you can imagine. Please subscribe. Please like us. Give us a high rating, whatever you, whatever you can do to puff it up and make it sound like you really, really like the show. And, and maybe you really, really do. I am Felix Bunnell. We're here until 9 o'clock. Um, I'm not sure if you tuned to this station much on Sunday evening. Before we come on, there's a show called History is Music, Music is History that's on from 7 to 8. I'm always listening to it while I'm driving here. Great mixture of music tied to some particular historic theme. And then 9 o'clock uh, is Jay's Radio Hour, where this, this young kid named Jay has all these great old 78s and stuff that he buys and picks up from yard sales and estate sales all over the world and puts them into a theme and plays these incredible, incredible music. Kind of stuff that didn't make the leap into the uh, into the digital era. Not likely to find pretty much anything Jay ever plays on YouTube, for instance. But anyway, it's a great Sunday night lineup with that uh, seven o'clock. History is music. Music is history. 
8 o'clock cascade of history and then uh, Jay's Radio Hour at 9 p.m. All right. Um, a little bit later on, we're going to talk to Joseph Penterodakis of the Key Peninsula Historical Society about a new exhibit they've got opening down there uh, on the Key Peninsula. And maybe if you're tuned in, you don't know where the Key Peninsula is. Maybe that's the tease to learn where the Key Peninsula is. That's coming up in about 10 minutes or so. Before we do that, though, I want to talk about Nard Jones, um, kind of a uh, first history radio broadcaster. Maybe not the first, but certainly I know I know um, I've found I've found um, notes in some archives about uh, Professor Edmund Meany talking about local history on the radio back in the 1930s. But Nard Jones had a regular series uh, called um, Northwest Narratives that was on every morning at 7:30 for about. More than a year, I think, from early 59, so about 65 years ago, until sometime in 1960. And it was on station KXA 770. He was on, I think it was live. I don't think these were ever recorded. I think he just wrote these little scripts. Um, They take about two or three minutes to get through. I'm going to read the very first one. And then we're going to play some of that vintage audio from that weird uh, book show where the guy told him, uh, corrected his spelling on the city of Linden. The, the very first episode of Northwest Narratives was called Child Founders of Seattle. So this is 65 years ago. I'm just going to read it. Um, and I, I'm not going to try to pretend to be Nard Jones or anything like that. And I'll probably pronounce Alki like Alki and not Alki. I'm not sure how you would have pronounced it back then. But uh, anyway, here we go. Here's the very first episode of Northwest Narratives from 60, about almost exactly 65 years ago. <clears throat> written by Nard Jones. Sponsored by People's Bank. If you can, if you can find a branch of People's Bank anymore... That would be historic in itself. Here we go. There's a city in Washington state, half of whose founders were children. Did I mention the title is called Child Founders of Seattle? Nard Jones never would have been that, un- that unprofessional 65 years ago, I'm sure. The name of the city is, of course, Seattle. If you drive out toward the end of Alki Point and you see the names of those children on a little monument, which nowadays most people pass at 50 miles an hour. There were exactly 12 children and 12 adults who arrived on that beach at Alki Point in 1851. I know that two men began a farm on the Duwamish River several days before, but that was not a settlement, not the settlement that became a city. It was at Alki that the city of Seattle really began. The Indians called the place Squadux. To our ears, it is not a pretty name, but these first founders called it New York, somehow knowing that one day there would be a great skyline on the bay. But the Indians, who had a sense of humor and had heard of the wonders of white men's cities, said it should be New York Alki, meaning New York by and by. And as you know, the founders decided finally to call it Seattle after Chief Seelf, who was friendly to them. What were the first few homes in Seattle like? They were log cabins, and some historians have written that these homes were built even as the pilgrims built their first dwellings. That's not true. The first homes of the pilgrims were not log cabins at all. They were huts of mud and sometimes actually teepees. But But our founders of Seattle did build log cabins first because the timber was easier to find than the mud. Those first homes were usually about 16 feet square, including kitchen, bedroom, and living room. For a long time, the floor would be hard-packed dirt. Later came a floor of split logs, flat side up. Usually there was one window without glass where mother tacked up a bit of cotton cloth or greased paper to keep the curious Indians from peering in. I think those 12 child founders of Seattle must have had a wonderful time along that great stretch of empty beach, gathering berries, hunting for pheasant eggs, running pell-mell for the cabins at the howl of a timber wolf back behind that dark wall of forest. Across the wide bay from Alki Point was more forest, over at the smoke trail of an Indian campfire. It was very quiet there in those days, quiet and lonely with just the sound of the sea and of the wind in the trees and the crying of the gulls at dayfall. 
And I had to look up what dayfall means. Dayfall to me seems like the opposite of nightfall. So is that the break of dawn? I'm not convinced. I wasn't able to really figure that out. So anyway, I think he was a terrific writer. He certainly wrote for the ear. And the length of these pieces is, is quick enough where, you know, he sort of he addresses the topic and you don't lose interest in it. It kind of moves right along. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm toying with the idea of delving in and recording the entire, I think it's 200 or so episodes. They're all about two minutes long. Maybe issue them in some kind of chunks as part of the podcast. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that, but I'm, I'm thinking a lot about it. So that's Nard Jones. He passed away back in 1972. He wrote a lot of great books about Pacific Northwest history. And I think I like to think of him as the first kind of guy doing Northwest history with on a regular basis as part of a regular show on the radio in the Pacific Northwest. And we'll, uh, we'll have more about him as the, uh, as the season progresses here. But let's get to some of this, this vintage audio. Um, I mentioned, I think, I think I got this. I know there are a couple different sources for this audio. I think one was his family, uh, his daughter, Debbie, who I uh, met with and interviewed uh, four or five years ago when I wrote about him for uh, Columbia Magazine. But this is, the, this is the first half of this interview. We'll see if we can get through the whole thing. Well, this is three or four minutes long. This is this book interview. Host's name, I think, is Glenn. This is from around 1947 when Evergreen Playground, Evergreen Playground was published, uh, one of Nard Jones' first uh, history books. He wrote a number of novels, too, including kind of rambling a bit here. But he wrote this novel called Oregon Detour, which is almost like a Main Street or uh, what, else would, where, what, what else would it fit into? Kind of... Um, uh, Winesburg, Ohio kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's a great story, but set in the Northwest, and it was critically acclaimed when it was published back in the 30s. Anyway, here's Nard Jones back in 1947, but first we hear from the guy hosting the little book review program. Thank you, and good evening, everybody. Well, here I am 3,000 miles from home, 3,000 miles from Washington, the state that Nard Jones has just recently written about in a new Dodd Mead & Company book called Evergreen Land. As Nard Jones is now living in New York, I thought it a good idea to interview Nard while I was here. Have the interview cut on a record, shipped to Seattle, and played there so that the people in the evergreen land can not only hear about this new book, but also hear Nard Jones's voice and perhaps learn something about him. When I picked up this book, Evergreen Land, and read the very first sentence, quote, I like the state of Washington, I said to myself, now there is an author in a book after me own heart because I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Washingtonian myself, as I was born in Port Townsend and had all my schooling in Washington. And I love the evergreen land just as much as Nard Jones does. By the way, Nard, your book is the third in the series of a Sovereign States books, isn't it, uh, being published by Dodd Mead? Yes. <clears throat> the other two are The Hawkeyes by Phil Stong, which is a book on Iowa, and uh, Tar Heels by Jonathan Daniels, a book on North Carolina. Well, Dodd Mead plans to uh, bring out a book on all 48 states, doesn't it? Yes, they do, and uh, of course it's quite an undertaking. It'll How long it'll take them? Probably uh, 30 years at least. 30 years? <laughs> they probably have two more sovereign states by that time, Alaska and Hawaii. Yeah. Well, I can readily understand why you were chosen to write the one about Washington, Nard. After all, you've been writing about our evergreen land for the past 20 years and have 10 books and many stories about Washington to your credit including Oregon Detour, The Petlands, Scarlet Petticoat, and Swift Flows the River. By the way, Nard, I understand that this story of early steamboat days along the mighty Columbia River, Swift Flows the River, is going to be reissued by your publisher, Dodd Mead. Isn't that right? Yes, I believe they're going to bring it out uh, this fall. It uh, was published first seven years ago, and I've been very happy with the way the 
home people have taken to it over all this time. Well, I was talking to Mr. Bond this morning, and he said uh, he didn't think maybe this fall, but they're going to try to. Oh. It's I already see. had 15 printings, hasn't it? That's right. And uh, issued in the dollar edition book? Right. Well, you know, there was quite a silence between uh, your writing of Scarlet Petticoat and your last novel, Still to the West, which was published last year. How do you account for that silence? Well, I spent four years as a uh, district uh, Navy public relations officer for the 13th Naval District and the Aleutians. Uh, I didn't have much time for writing. Well, you're already planning and writing a new novel, aren't you? What are you going to call it, Narn? Farewell Content. Farewell Content. That's a good title. Where'd you get it? It comes <laughs> from uh, Othello. Uh, oh, now forever, farewell the tranquil mind, farewell the plume troop and the big wars that made ambition virtue, and farewell content. Farewell Content. How long, uh, when are you going to have it published, or have you finished it yet? Oh, no, I think uh, probably 1949 will be the publication oh, year. Some time off yet, huh? Yeah. Well, do you remember the other day when you were autographing all those copies of your Evergreen Land up at Dodd, Mead & Company? Yeah. Well, those, uh, those books were shipped out to our state of Washington and are now available at the book departments in Rhodes of Seattle, Rhodes Brothers Department Store in Tacoma, Wall Company in Bellingham, Roombaugh McLean in Everett, and George Wolfe Company down in Aberdeen. And, of course at the Archway Bookstore on 3rd Avenue in Seattle. I mention this fact here because I know our listeners will want to get an autographed copy of your book, Evergreen Land. Uh, Nard, I want you to know that I think you've done a wonderful job in painting a new kind of portrait of Washington. And I love the fair warning you give in the very first paragraph in your book. Do you mind my quoting your words? I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. I was born in the state of Washington, and I believe that it is the greatest state in the Union or certainly that it will be. This is by way of friendly warning that in the pages which follow, I shall not regard my state with lofty amusement or bitter scorn, but neither shall I picture it as rife with quaint and assorted folk ways, nor merely an awe-inspiring setting of scenery against which pioneer characters play out familiar frontier incidents. This has been done often and well, and now the time has come to regard Washington as a commonwealth concerned with today and tomorrow. Yeah, so the book review program it has kind of a um, sort of a the guy sort of plays a good cop, bad cop, all in in one character in praising Nard Jones and also sort of uh, goading him about his book title and what, when the next one's going to be published. I thought I want to find more recordings by that particular book program and see if he treated other people as uh, it's it's strange. It's it's not there's something about it doesn't quite I haven't quite been able to sort out what's exactly going on in that conversation there. But um, we're just going to play that first half of the interview. Um, we won't we won't get into the details about how Nard Jones responded to having his spelling corrected for uh, mis for the city of Linden, Whatcom County being misspelled in, in the book. So, all right, um, I'm Felix Spinell. This is Cascade of History, and I'm going to see if I can get um, Joseph Penteradakis here on the phone. Let's see if this works out here. I always have to press all the right buttons here at the right time. Joseph, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, that was that's the smoothest I've ever welcomed a guest ca guest oh. caller onto the program in the entire history of the program. That's oh, that's fantastic. Thank I'm, I'm great. Me on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for making time to uh, be on the show tonight. Oh, I, my uh, pleasure. My pleasure. I know late on a Sunday evening is rarely convenient for anybody. <laughs> I wonder why I wanted to do a show this time of night, but I I, I think it's I think it's. <laughs> It's a great it's, time to there's, chat. I there's mean, fewer yeah. distractions. Yeah, there's nothing else going on, really. Exactly. Uh, so <laughs> I, I saw some stuff on, um, I think it was on social media, where you're, you're a board member with the Key Peninsula Historical Society. First of all, for people who don't have any idea what we're talking about, where is the Key Peninsula? 
the, you're not alone, by the way. The Key Peninsula is the westernmost point of Pierce County. We are one peninsula west of Gig Harbor. Okay. So if you go to Gig Harbor and keep going, and then you cross west at Purdy, Purdy Bridge, that's the Key Peninsula past Purdy. And I live on Heron Island, which is the even farther west than the Key Peninsula. So I'm I'm the westernmost point on the peninsula on, in Pierce County. And is this a silly question? Why is it called the Key Peninsula? Not silly at all. In fact, um, in 1931, it didn't have a name uh, until about 1931 when it began being a little more uh, uh, settled and uh, there were business groups that wanted to actually give the peninsula its own name. So there was a contest in the peninsula. And the winning entry was uh, the name Key because to the person it looked like an old-fashioned key from above. So the map looks like an old-fashioned key. So that's how it got its name. That's great. I love I love that kind but of thing. But if you didn't get the official name from the Board of Geographic Names until 1980, is the one that was finally approved as an official name. Oh, interesting. Okay, and so then if you had to enlist the communities or the neighborhoods, or what, what, what would count as being on the Key Peninsula in terms of names of towns or places that people might recognize? So the most, the best known ones are probably Long Branch, uh, Lake Bay, um, Vaughn. Those are the three Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and most of them are on the east side of the peninsula because that was the one that was most accessible by water from Tacoma and other places. Okay. The west side only has, uh, actually Vaughn is the only community on the west side of the peninsula that's, probably, that's most remote. Um, yeah, as you come in from the Purdy Bridge from the north, the first community is Warner and then Minter. Um, again, Key Center is the, the focal point of the peninsula. It's called Key Center. It was named again in 1932. That's great. So... And so the uh, the Key Peninsula Historical Society, how long has that organization been around? Since 1974, I think. Okay. 74, 75, yeah, not very long. Oh, yeah, I know a lot of historical societies were formed around the time of the Bicentennial. There was a big effort to get communities yeah, to recognize themselves. Yeah, you're right. Okay. That's probably what, how it came, came right, cool. to be. You're right. So I was intrigued when I read about this um, exhibit that you guys have that's coming, uh, opening next Saturday, the February 24th, I believe. It's called right. Roadshow. Correct. And it talks about, I love this opening line, roads are communities' true unsung heroes. <laughs> yeah, we believe that. I mean, you know, the Mosquito Fleet has been researched and written about quite a bit. And justifiably so. I mean, it's an important way for people to get around and confuse the sun. But roads never get any any respect. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not really get, and yes, without roads, it wouldn't be anywhere. I mean, it's kind of a, a tourism, but they are an important way for communities to grow and, and expand. So we began thinking about, well, first of all, we're talking about Indian trails that used to crisscross the peninsula back in the 1850s. In fact, we have evidence of them on some early uh, GLO surveys. Uh, so it's actually, they recorded the Indian trails, which is amazing. We have the receipts. Neat. <laughs> so, and, uh, but then from the Indian trails to now, the history has been sort of fuzzy. I mean, how did the roads come to be? How did they evolve? Why are they where they were? Why, how, did they, how did they materialize? So then we spent untold hours at the state archives, uh, county archives, and we'll have the whole story now all laid out in the exhibit. Uh, from, uh, all began in 1884. Most of the roads were uh, laid out beginning 1884. That's when pretty much everything happened on the peninsula. See, and that's, I mean, I, I'm totally sold. I love, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying because there's something about the um, being able to look at old maps and compare old maps from different eras. And I'm just talking about road maps even because it's, right, it's hard right. to come by the kind of like the, the trail maps and stuff you're talking about. 
But just to see like when a highway gets realigned and some big curve gets left in place and you can, especially when you can go to the spot and you can see the old roadbed kind of still curving off or a lot of times like uh, driving over uh, like Stevens Pass, uh, there'll be like, you know, old Stevens Pass Highway and you'll see some winding little twisting road that's off on the other side of the ravine while you're on the new modern highway. And exactly, I, yeah. I, maybe are you are you and I the only people who care about this stuff, or you think there's a? I mean, I, I don't mean that in a, in a to be in a mean way. I mean, it's like this is is this esoteric, or I mean, I, I, to me, it's not. It's really you know, exciting. I, I think it's so obvious to people that we don't just don't think about it. But in the end, I think everybody wants to see the show now. They want to see. No, that's not interesting. So people realize it's an important resource in the community. You know, and I think we may be the only ones that talk about it, but by the end of the show, everybody will be talking about it. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think when you and I spoke briefly earlier today, you, t- you have an interest, deep interest in maps, I think. Correct, yeah. I, I collect maps, uh, mostly of, uh, of Western Washington um, and Washington in general, and in the Northwest, yeah. What is it that you like about maps, old maps? Well, uh, my interest actually is um, not only to see how things change, but when they change. We used to look at the maps, and they move from one from one shape to another, and from one way of looking at the at the, at the at the outline to another, and you just you can see people trying to make sense of their environment and the geography, and uh, and also to just to, to watch as the maps evolve over time. Yeah, which is my interest. I mean, to see how they from the 1850s down to the present day. I one in my collection, I have a sketch that uh, John Preston, who was the first Superior General in the Northwest in 1851. They drew a quick little sketch of the Northwest because that's where they wanted to actually run the survey lines north, south, from Portland to the north. Oh, and like the Willamette Meridian, that kind of thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. In fact, that goes to the Key Peninsula. Oh, it does? Right? <laughs> yeah, it does. In fact, it was right in front of my property on the mainland. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for, for people listening who might not know what the Willamette Meridian is, can you give an explanation of what that is? Yes. When they began to survey the Northwest in 1851, uh, they had to establish an east-west line called the baseline and north-south line called the Meridian. And from that, they begin surveying east and west of that, the, very, the squares are called the township, six-mile squares. So it's the, the reference point for the survey. You have to have this north-south line and the east-west line, like a, a parallel and a meridian. Yeah. And uh, so the Willamette Meridian actually goes, starts in Portland, and goes comes straight through Peter Sound, through the Key Peninsula. And is it fair to say that that meridian is... Nowadays is entirely invisible. Wasn't it actually marked in the early days with some kind of stone markers in Portland? But now well, it's pretty much yeah, invisible. Actually, there is a marker in Portland. There's actually a monument in Portland uh, that marks it. Um, over time, I think there probably are still monuments here and there. Um, I'm not sure if this, how many of them still exist. Okay. To be honest with you, but some of them actually are, are still around. Okay. Now, so if people come down to the museum there and uh, to see this exhibit, what kinds of things are in the exhibit? Well, starting with early petitions for county roads by settlers, actually we start with the trail maps by Indian trails from the 1880s. We have petitions of, uh, by homeowners for new county roads. And then we have uh, 10 maps from def- 10 different periods that show you how the roads evolved over, over, the, over the last 140 years, all the way down to the present. Is, um, is it possible to identify like what the oldest sort of oldest stretch of either that was originally a trail or originally a road or something that's still in use in its same basic alignment that's in that in your area? Yes, there is, and we know exactly where that is, and we can show it to you when you come to the show. <laughs> 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 it's called Creviston Road. Creviston Road, uh, there are two short segments called Creviston Road on the peninsula, on, on the peninsula, and they are the, what remains of the original surveyed road in 1884, 
parts of it will remain realigned, but there are still two stretches still called crevice of the road, and those are the ones that uh, still go back to 1884. Wow. So yeah, that was you know that kind of make, gives you goosebumps. I mean, really, it's amazing. To yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. I know there's a uh, there's a stretch of the old U.S. Highway 10, you know, which is now Interstate 90 over in eastern Washington, right along um, where it's called. I think it's Four Lakes and um, where Cheney is. And they, they left this stretch of highway there. You know, it's been completely bypassed by Interstate 90. It's been completely bypassed by the county road. But there's a monument to one of the uh, battles back in the 1850s, oh, I guess, or yeah. 1860s, it, yeah. that was built along yeah. the old U.S. 10. And so they left that monument still where it was installed, like in the 30s. And they left like this, I don't know, 100-yard stretch of U.S. 10 that's this old concrete road just kind of pops out of the ground and is just left in place. Is there anything like that around the Key Peninsula where there's some stretch of really ancient pavement or anything Not like that? Not really. The first roads are all dirt roads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the things began being paved in the 1920s, and they've been repaved over and over again. So there is no, um, I mean, but the old alignment is still there for crevice of roads. That's pretty and cool. It's a windy road. Um, I bike on all the time. I'm there on the bike all the time. That's and very cool. I know, like, the back of my hand. It's an interesting road. It twists and turns and goes up and down, which roads today don't do that. You know, they try to go straight. <laughs> yeah, they kind of took all the fun out of it by straightening exactly, all those yeah. roads. Well, yeah. All right, so how can people find out more information about this exhibit and about the Key Peninsula Historical Society? Okay, keypeninsulamuseum.org is our website. Okay. And, of course, also on, on Facebook, Key Peninsula Historical Society on Facebook. And, and this all kicks off next Saturday. What time are you guys open next Saturday? One to four on Saturday. And the show is up until November. Okay. I open Tuesdays and, Tuesdays and Saturdays, one to four. And you sound to me like you're probably the guy who knows more about this show than anybody. You sound like you've got the passion for this. Uh, I'm not the only one, but okay. yeah, I have a passion for this. <laughs> okay. Are you going to be guiding, leading any guided tours, giving any kind of talks or anything over oh, the next couple months? You bet. You bet. Yeah, actually, we'll plan to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So people follow your Facebook page. It's probably a good way to kind Correct. of keep abreast yeah. of that stuff. We'll okay. actually maintain the Facebook page, so I'll be able to, to post about that as well. All right. Well, Joseph Pentridakis of the Key Peninsula Historical Society, thanks for being our guest on Cascade of History tonight. Very excited about the show. I'm def- I don't know if I'll make it down for the opening, but I'm definitely going to come down and check it out. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for having me on. All right. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Bye. It's so nice to have people come join us live on the phone like that for a history radio show, the only live history radio show in the Pacific Northwest right here on Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bunnell. This has been Cascade of History. Uh, I think we're doing a live show next Sunday night. I'm not sure what we have planned yet. I'm sure we'll come up with something interesting. Uh, I want to thank uh, everybody for being on the show tonight, that uh, archival interview with uh, Dr. Quintard Taylor, um, Joseph Pentridakis from the Key Peninsula Historical Society, and a family of Nard Jones, who was very kind to me four or five, six years ago when they shared a bunch of cool audio with me and some uh, nice old information about, uh, about a great local author and history broadcaster. Um, we will be back next Sunday night. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the show, you can go to uh, our Facebook page to find out more information about that Ryan House spaghetti dinner that's next Sunday, February 25th. That's down in Sumner. It's at Purdy's, 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. It's a fundraiser for that program there. Hope to see you there. I'm, I'm going to try and make it down there. I'm Felix Spinell with Cascade of History, and thanks for joining us here on Space 101.1 FM. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing 
and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.